try to make sense of women's achievements as if like whoops I just you know my skirt blew up in the wind and next thing I knew they were all there along with a career and those are that's not how it works not for any of these ladies and not for me you know you're listening to skip intro with me Krista Smith Natasha Leone started acting at six years old in nearly three decades she's appeared in over 50 films and television shows including Slums of Beverly Hills, But I'm a Cheerleader, American Pie, Scary Movie 2, and on and on, before finding a home at Netflix. First with Orange is the New Black, then with directing comedian Sarah Cooper, Everything's Fine, and finally with her own series, Russian Doll. I'm here with Natasha today to talk about the second season of Russian Doll and to find out more about her creative process, both behind the scenes and in front of the camera. We are live. <laughs> we are live from L.A. Saturday night. Hi, Natasha. It's great to see you here Hi, in L.A. Krista. for a minute. In this journey of Russian Doll, it's been, I can kind of chart my last, you know, four months through trying to get a time for us to talk about this show. And I'm kind of so thankful that it's like after it's come out and after everyone's talked about it and it's it's kind of great to like have this moment on the back end. So I appreciate that. But one thing I want to say is it was so great that you got to host the season finale of SNL for the first time. First of all, you were fantastic. You looked fucking Thank great. You. you look like a stack of hundred dollar bills coming out on stage. I loved oh, yeah. it. And it was also like Pete Davidson and Kate McKinnon. It was like a, an era. Um, it was like a passing of a torch, right? And you were you were closing out that era. So it was, first of all, just congratulations. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's great to see you now. Thank you so much. I was, I, I think it maybe was the happiest week of my life. I was so, so happy there. And I can't believe Fred and Maya came and I would run into their dressing rooms and Maya would be like, what are you doing back here? You're in the middle of the show. Like, I'm just saying, what's up? She's like, I've never seen anyone do this before. I was like, I just want to say hi. And... <laughs> It's so fun. And 80, it was 80s last show. And I also got to direct an episode of Shrill. And years ago, she put me in like a short film that she wrote. And so we're buddies too. And um, yeah, it was Kyle's last show. And But it was just so, yeah, it was so special. And it was so, it's like all of the, uh, all of the good stuff and none of the fat, you know, like showbiz has a lot of extra and it sort of SNL really like distills it down to just like the nugget of like, just like talent. It's just like, are we going to do this thing? Uh, Cause we got to do it and we got to do it quick. It almost reminded me of being like sleepover parties as a kid. And I would like pull my pants up really high and almost do like a, a Steve Urkel thing or something to like make everybody laugh, you know? And, um, not that that's a great move. If you're going to a slumber party later, I don't suggest it. But, uh, you know, it really is like this most pure state of sort of like inner child, ridiculous person, except it's lights, camera, it's time to do it. And it's like rock star style. It's pretty, pretty fun. That's great. I met, imagine it's got to be a full, full circle moment because growing up, you know, being a New Yorker, being a kid in the industry, it's just so special. And and it came through. Yeah, it's funny. I've been like an, an underdog for so long in this biz. And like, there are certain things that are happening. I'm just like, oh, shit, I think that that 
that might be uh, resolving itself here because that's a real deal official thing. And um, for sure, I mean, as a kid doing this uh, and as a city kid especially, it's always like the idea of that feels so, you know, it's like you have these like short lists of dreams, right? And it's like, oh, you want to work with Scorsese and, you know, be on SNL and, uh, right? Everybody wants to get to the Oscars, right? They show, like, it's almost like the things that they show you on TV as a kid are supposed to, you know, th- those are the markers or something. Uh, of course, like, as you grow up, that that list becomes much more nuanced and sort of um, more project-specific and less general, but it's funny that SNL really remains, you know? It's a constant. Anyway, it was a blast. I, I had so much, I love, they also like Velcro your clothes off you. And I don't mean that in a kinky way that I liked it. I just liked, um, I think I just liked the speed of it all. It really is my vibe. And Mulaney helped me with my monologue, which was really sweet. And it was just really, you know, um, and uh, Amy Poehler, who of course is the co-creator of Russian Doll, along with Leslie Headland. Um, and, uh, but so Amy was like so in touch with me. And of course, my Rudolph and I have this company, Animal Pictures, together. So we sort of, you know, we share an office. And so those two ladies are like the major ladies in my life. And, uh, and so Maya was, we were in touch every day. And Maya actually was on the, the, the episode, everything. Uh, and, you know, I guess Chloe's another one of these, like, you know, 25 year, you know, stalwart figures. And she was the, like, she, you know, she was there and Uzo came. And so it was like a really, I don't know. It was just very special. It was like gangs all here. And well, Freddie was there and it was like, oh, right. We broke up, but we like dated for seven years. So it's like, we're going to be married (laughs) forever. We love each other. You know, it was really felt very, family style somehow. Yeah, you have an incredible tribe. And I think it's from on, sitting on the outside or observing it. I mean, these women are some of my favorite women on the planet. And I've been able to experience short moments of intimacy with them at various points in my career and through mutual friends and stuff and and kind of in the way that I've experienced you. And it's just like, these are the best of the best. These are real relationships grounded in truth, grounded in, I'm sure, shared experiences and, you know, bonded by your artistry, right? Ultimately, that's how you probably met each other was like through this industry. But the fact that these relationships have maintained. It's I, I really have not seen anything like it in the kind of 20 years that I've been covering and, and been in this business as a journalist. And it's it's remarkable to me, especially with the challenges that you've had in your own personal life that have been obviously very public. We're not going to re-litigate here, but it's amazing to me, like these friends, and I think of Chloe, and I was watching, knowing that I was going to interview you today, and I had seen, obviously, Russian Doll. And last night, I re-watched the ending again. I was tearing up and started to cry when you and Chloe at the end, and she asked you, basically, would you pick me again as your mother? And you're like, what is she going to say? That whole 
scene. And for me, being part of like the Dead Mother Club and the themes that you discuss in this series, in this season were really profound for me coming from immigrant families, from, you know, we carry the damage of that DNA, whether it happened to us or not, it's in our cells. And I love the way you got into that, but I love that it was Chloe and it was so moving. So it's a very long way of saying brilliant. Also, that it was Chloe and that you did do SNL with with Maya and Amy was there. And all of that is just such a triumph of living and spirit. And I'm fascinated with your ability to persevere and carry on watching you over the last couple decades, basically. And I'm so happy when you say like, it feels like you're an underdog and you're not an underdog. You're not an underdog anymore because you can't kill talent. And that's one of the things like if people are talented, you can't kill it, no matter if they have a bad movie or a bad episode or a bad divorce or a bad whatever. You can't kill talent. And you're here closing out SNL, crushing it with the deepest, most profound, well-reviewed show that so many people talked about so many layers to unpack in it. But really, it's just about the end of the day, the will to to survive and live. I really appreciate it. You know, I, I, I do because I um, it's a funny thing. Um, like just like, yeah, hearing hearing each other's experiences mirrored back in so many ways, like, you know, I've been told that that's really what friendship is on some level that like the most we can give to each other is sort of like witnesses, you know, like this idea of, uh, hey, you may not be the best uh, judge of self, you know, because we all kind of have these distortions of self. And of course, Russian Doll is inherently so much a show about like, can you face yourself in the mirror? And are you seeing, you know, a a true self, you know, how deep can you look uh, with it, you know, which still being palatable. are acceptable. Um, and just this idea, yeah, that I guess in life you have to swallow unpalatable truths about yourself if you hope to truly be able to actually, you know, do that kind of Kubrick stare into the mirror uh, for Nadia and for Alan. Anyway, but just to say that all of these, um, you know, these women that we're talking about have certainly been like witnesses and mirrors in, in my life and hopefully me to them. But I, I am really grateful to hear your take, because, you know, obviously you really are a pretty serious lady yourself. And um, and it's just nice to hear. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, I'm so deep in it, like with the I think I'm just somebody who really, you know, does the work. I'm guessing that I sort of have these, uh, you know, relationships because these are major human beings and they are major talents. And I think that yeah, we're kind of like the don't fuck around crew, you know, I mean, like, sure, there's, you know, there's outfits and there's jokes and there's all these things. But, um, you know, we're pretty serious about the work. Like, it's almost one of these things where if we were all boys, it would probably be a lot more apparent because people would speak about the work differently. It wouldn't be quite so, you know, cute that we were all, quote, good at our jobs or something. We would sort of see it uh a little bit more for like the academic uh, achievement that it is sort of as more of like um, intelligentsia or something, frankly. And I only say that in, uh, I don't know, in the hopes of, you know, buoying uh, young women around the facts, which are that we sort of always try to make sense of 
women's achievements as if like, yeah, gosh, I don't know. I just came upon it. And gosh, I don't know. I just came upon these group of incredible geniuses. I gosh, I don't even know. Whoops. I just, you know, my skirt blew up in the wind. And next thing I knew they were all there along with a career. And those are, that's not how it works. Not for any of these ladies and not for me, you know? Um, and yeah, cause it's that thing of like, you know, talent is great, but it's gotta be backed by intense sort of discipline. And you need, you really need, you know, people that, um, you can connect with and talk about all that stuff to, to make sense of that ride and to bounce off of, I mean, now these are also creative partnerships. And uh, so, uh, you know, like first things first is just the truth and trust. Like, you know, I would, like, I would for sure give my life for these ladies. Like I would definitely, nobody wants my organs is the smart move I did. I made sure early on that if I was going to have friends that were this intense, that I was the guy, nobody was going to be please. We know, I know you, we want to give me your liver. Keep it. I don't want it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I actually love them to death. And yeah, ultimately, yeah, so first things first, it's like everybody's, you know, pals and meets. But over the years, it kind of, I mean, Uzo, I guess I haven't really, other than Orange is the New Black, we haven't really had a chance to make our own thing together. But we definitely, you know, we talk about it and we're always, you know, for example, she's writing a, you know, a, a memoir now. And there's no shortage of dinners where, like, she's kind of walking through it all just to kind of... It's almost this thing of like, sometimes I think as, as friends and as creators and stuff, we need to hear ourselves talk about things in a safe space to be like, do I know how to say this out loud yet? You know, like, mm-hmm. cause it's mm-hmm. not, Definitely. she, she doesn't need me actually to weigh in. I mean, she's an, an incredible example of somebody whose thoughts and sort of, um, personhood is so utterly fully formed, you know, and but I think sometimes it's just important to hear in a sort of safe space of non-judgmental, has nothing to do with this, unconditional love. Like, okay, I see. So as I'm talking, this is what it sounds like. Interesting that this is what my subconscious has been putting together, even though I haven't said it out loud that many times yet. You know, um, just stuff like that. Because of COVID and everything, there was a several years between the seasons, right? You know, you are everything to this show. Obviously, you are the star. Your face is the key art, the red hair. Nadia is it, the jacket, all of it. But you're also the showrunner. You directed four episodes, I believe. You you were writing on these. What is the part of the show that you enjoy most? Is it the day you're directing? Is it the writer's room? Is it the acting? What What is it for you? Yeah, I mean, the show is definitely, yeah. I mean, there's no reason to sort of try and make myself small or apologize for it. I mean, it is definitely like I'm the sort of like visionary for the show. I mean, that is very much my trip. That said, it is hugely collaborative, the show. So yes, it's kind of like all in service to trying to um, uh, sort of like put my brain on screen 100%, but I don't do that alone by any stretch. And I don't know that I could. I often do fantasize about that, to be honest, like just what it would be if I was actually just on a deserted island and I had this weird assignment of kind of like come home with this and I was just, you know, forced to do it almost as like stream of consciousness in a vacuum. 
I'm always curious. I'm like, what would that thing be? Uh, and I guess, you know, the good news there is I just wrote uh, a feature that I'm hoping to direct. So I guess that'll be a version of that exercise. Um, but this is always, you know, it's uh, baked into it is that it is, you know, wildly collaborative. Obviously, um, you know, Leslie and I created it in the first season. Amy had called me one day. I was at home watching NYPD Blue by myself. I was depressed. Nobody was calling. The phone was not ringing. So I was like doing like a NYPD Blue marathon, really in a Dennis Franz and like just eating all the snacks I could find and slowly, you know, metamorphosizing into Dennis Franz and uh, Detective Sipowicz. <laughs> and she said, as long as I've known you, you've always been the oldest girl in the world. I said, please, I don't need your insults right now. What do you want from me? And she said, I think we should do a show about that. I said, thank God somebody had something they want to do. Uh, so it became something called Old Soul. We made it for NBC. Uh, I always am sort of doing this game where I have an alter ego named Nadia after Nadia Comaneci, sort of like Bukowski as Henry Chinaski or whatever. And uh, and um, Ruth is based on my godmother. So in this uh, NBC sitcom that was failed, sitcom that Amy and I did, she was played by... Um, Ellen Burstyn, who's extraordinary, of course, in Russian Doll. It's the incredible Elizabeth Ashley. And this year, also the incredible Annie Murphy. Um, Greta Lee, who plays Maxine, also played my best friend in this failed NBC sitcom. Uh, it was directed by David Wayne, who's, you know, Wet Hot American Summer and so many other things. He's, he's awesome. So many incredible people. It was basically Nadia was like a failed gambler or like an ex-gambler who uh, now was sort of almost like running errands and, you know, helping her godmother, Ellen Burstyn, Richard Benjamin, Marla Gibbs, Fred Willard, Rita Moreno. I mean, the cast was stacked. It was it was pretty great. And yeah, they did not pick it up. It was shocking. <laughs> and Amy, like, we were like, this is it. And I say, I say all that because it's a, I think it's a helpful story for like, you know, anybody that's listening that's like, you know, I just said, these things are so crazy, not overnight, like once in a blue moon they are, but the dark nights of the soul are graphic and ongoing and, uh, and long lasting, you know, because you're like, I thought I had the thing and I'm wearing my Lou Reed t-shirts. Isn't this my character? You know? And so then Amy said to me, I remember like in her car or something, we were parked and she was like, okay, but we shouldn't let it go just yet. I know that they didn't pick up the show, but what would we make if there were no restrictions of network? And we started dreaming up what would become Russian Doll. Essentially, it was like, you know, something based on all that jazz and, you know, Ben Wells' Exterminating Angel and, you know, the, the, the title or I guess the play, No Exit. And, you know, this idea of sort of if you could go to the same sort of party every night and do every sort of choose your own adventure permutation of, you know, taking home a different person from the party and... Is that the right avenue to the happy life I seek? Is that the right avenue to the happy, you know, like uh, this idea that until you sort of got right with yourself, no, no road at that party was going to be the correct destination. And so we started like, you know, thinking about that. And so season one, we already established this all female writers room. I think because I'm obviously, you know, Tish skipped me my senior year of high school to do a film and philosophy double major, but I dropped out. So I'm like, I'm not saying that I'm, you know, a dummy by any stretch, but I'm definitely self-taught. I really try to like surround myself with the smartest people. Like, so it's that room is just all my insecurities. Like it's just Harvard, Yale to the max, like everywhere. I mean, writing and, 
editing are the hardest parts for sure. But they're also in many ways, like they're the darkest. And when they're good, they're the sort of the dreamiest. In general, I would say that I'm happiest as a person altogether directing. Like that just seems to really be, because I think because of all the child acting, I've been in like a hundred movies over 35 years. I'm so, by the way, only like five of them are watchable, but I think I'm just very comfortable on a set and directing sort of occupies, it, it takes all of my defects and converts them to assets. Like so, sort of like the fact that I have, um, everything needs to be like a New York minute with me. That's great when you're directing because you need quick, decisive answers, for example. You know what I mean? Like that whole canon of references, Rolodex, whatever, has a place to go. Suddenly it's not just, you know, ah, I got to get these images out of my head. Um, it's I love working with actors. I love department heads. And of course, yes, being like the, the showrunner and everything, I love like rewriting on set intensely and kind of I love preparing intensely. Uh and but you know, I I think I also really enjoy the um in the edit once we've cracked it and now we're putting songs to it, sort of like songs on the images. That's when my body really calms down and suddenly I can actually sort of see the quality of the work in a way, because now it's kind of it's almost like I've been like building a house and like hammers and nails and measuring and sort of like was the picture you know at the wrong angle. And I've been like, I think it's the right coat of paint. Wait, why do we have stucco? We hate stucco. Like it's been sort of, and suddenly I'm like just stepping back or something. And I am like, holy shit, Chloe is fucking crushing it this season. Or my God, Greta's extraordinary. Or I'm just sitting there watching Charlie and like crying, you know? Anyway, I, I could do this a lot, but I, suffice to say, I love it. And I, the important part to me is just to say, I definitely do not do it alone. It's interesting because it is like everyone's had that fantasy, right, of being able to correct wrongs or change regret or absolve yourself of guilt. And so I think that's why people and audience gravitate to it, because obviously you're like, oh, what would I do? And especially this episode with you're actually chasing something that you think you're chasing, right? The gold. And it takes you on this journey of the past, which I, like I said earlier in the conversation, was really prescient with me because of my own family history, including World War II and, you know, all of that stuff. And for you, how cathartic was that to actually go in and crack open those things? Because I know some of it is is adjacent to your own personal experience, if not directly related, but it, it, it also obviously informs who you are. But through that process, did you learn anything new about yourself just now in your 40s, like going through this season? I'm really happy it resonated, Krista. That makes me happy. Because, uh, I mean, more than anything, that's why I'm doing it, obviously, is I just it's just that desire to connect with people on a real level because of, yeah, all this crazy drug stuff. You know, obviously, I was, I was a drug addict for Weirdly now, it's a lot less time than I've been clean, which is funny, but it is a seminal event to go through because, you know, when you're doing it at the level I was doing it, obviously it really is like, you know, I, near, I really almost died and I had to rebuild a whole life. And I think that that perspective creates this sense of in doing this work now of like, we live and we die. What do I want to say and do here? You know what I mean? That's mostly why it's still relevant. Like rather than saying, hey guys, I don't want to talk about that anymore. It's a long time ago. It's, I'm not ashamed of it. You know what I mean? And I don't, I think that it's a, it's a very normal response to life to be like, 
you know, uh, I don't know if I can do this thing, uh, the way that it's architected. And anyway, um, so, you know, I'm making the show to my best ability as a way to communicate with people and say, I don't think we're alone in this experience of things like, you know, um, like untreated mental illness in a family member is really intense. You know, it just is. And I think a lot of people go through it. And for some reason, there's like a cloak of shame around it. And it, you know, it's, it's really confusing. You know what I mean? When you grow up in that kind of environment, you you don't know if you're allowed to talk about it or not. And so it's very natural to also like, you know, take it out on yourself and always feel like, you know, scared and afraid and alone. And like the, there's no like solid uh, footing firmament, you know, it's, you know, we probably started this show. I don't know. Maybe I was like 37 or something. Um, but you begin to see, of course, a part of aging is just that, you know, there are sort of, no victims and there are no villains in a way in the sort of family story. Like to the extent that everybody was just their own fucked up person who came by their fucked up damage, honestly, who was doing their best in that moment. Because as you get older, you're basically like, wait, 40 doesn't mean you're 300. Like I think when you're a kid, you think, oh my God, they're grownups. How come they can't get it together? Like have food in the fridge. I am a kid. Like, you need to feed me every day. How do you not know that? And then you get older and you just kind of space on stuff. You have a shitty week and, you know what I mean? Like, you wake up and you're like, oh my God, I, I got to get the housekeeper in here. Why are there clothes everywhere? And I forgot to do laundry, you know? And it's not because you're a bad person or something. It's just life gets overwhelming or something. I mean, like my mom had me I, or she had my brother when I was like, she was like 19, you know? I am, I'm just always curious about these kind of big questions and, and a shorter way of doing this. If we weren't sort of long form would be to say season one is about, it's an outer layer of the Russian doll. It's the biggest, you know, it's the most superficial layer in a way, which is the the immediate self-destructive problem of, you know, insanity is, you know, making the same mistakes over and over again, expecting different results. Nadia and Alan have a dying problem. You know, how do I stop dying? And season two very organically becomes like, okay, but chicken and the egg, like what was the causal effect for why Alan threw himself off the roof in season one? And what was the causal effect for why Nadia is living this evil Knievel, defiant lone wolf lifestyle, sort of walking in front of taxis and, you know, I don't give a shit and chain smoking, right? So how do I start living becomes the inevitable question of season two. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I was very, my personal belief now as a participating member of society is all these years later, is that these are the adult questions that we're all kind of trying to make sense of as it's inherently a show about mortality, which inherently is a show about time, um, finite time. And how do we how do we all make sense of it? You know, Ruth is dying. It's now three and a half years later. Uh, is Nadia really ready to show up for that adult event? You know, seemingly she's supposed to be an adult. She's turning 40. But... This idea that suddenly it's like it's, you know, you often see a male midlife crisis, right? Like I'm going to get a fast car and a younger girlfriend. And 
I like the idea that for Nadia, it's kind of her version of that is, oh, I'm going to go travel back in time and try to change everything and start over. It just makes me laugh in a way. The inciting yeah. event is being born, I think is funny. Yeah. This is very funny. Well, also, what is great about it, too, is it takes us back to, like, possibly the greatest, like, creative explosion in New York in 1982, right? Like, what New York was then. It was amazing. I also really enjoyed that aspect of the time travel for me, personally. And that would make us laugh, too. You know, a lot of the um, sort of basic tent poles of the season are just sort of math. You know, it was her 36th birthday. All right, we got this pandemic stuff, so we're sort of delayed. So what's that? When is it, when is it going to come out? And back from there, if she was 36, you know, then how old would she be? And okay, 1982, I guess. And what year was the Krugerrand minted? When was the war? You know, when was this socialist project going on? What would make sense? Um, but yeah, it's funny that the show is inherently kind of like this out of time New York, just in terms of the East Village, the way we're presenting it, even in season one and Nadia's whole look with the big hair and the sort of shoulder pads and the smoking. And it's always funny that they kind of, you know, that is always kind of a bit of a new wave show anyway. Yeah. And the uh, what poster, like the falling in love, the Meryl Streep and then the, um, you know, the little Easter eggs were great. The crazy Eddie's, all that stuff was was really fun. And the, and the way that for the subway just covered in graffiti. It's funny to hear people like talk about shows because like some of the the questions that I would be asked were like, so how did you guys go about the rules? And it's like, for us, the rules are so intense, you know? So actually, you're only seeing a graffiti train kind of in this one moment where she's not on her actual train. She's just going to return the coins. I think it's just that we've seen that image enough through, you know, Saturday Night Fever and whatever, a million things. And um, But actually, we just couldn't afford to use a real graffiti train for the whole thing because you have to sort of like uh, use like skins and do it in posts and all this stuff because the MTA doesn't want to show a graffiti train. So a lot of the stuff that they do, for example, in the Joker, we couldn't afford to do. So we ended up going with this more like neutral idea of essentially what we would call the Jacob's Ladder train, uh, which was just sort of like vaguely of the era and kind of period correct. But this idea. And so, yeah, it's funny. There's all kinds of stuff like that. That's really you'd have to watch it, you know, like um, you'd have to get into there with the writer's room to really be like, oh, this is what's going on. It's not dissimilar from season one that way of like, you know, loop G4 and nobody is ever going to, you know, perceive that it doesn't matter. But somehow if it's not there, you're going to miss it and something's going to feel off, you know, like you actually shouldn't be able to. Um, and also in some cases, we're just taking kind of a little bit of liberties because like life's too short and there's a cleaner way to articulate something and whatever. I mean, this is essentially tangential. It's maybe <laughs> also the David Dinkins when Alan's like the David oh, Dinkins, like all yeah. those things. I love those are little Natasha that I, I just want you to know I thoroughly enjoyed uh, as part really of the, the viewing experience uh, of the series. It was, you know, what's funny is um, seeing it on the big screen at the premiere with an audience was incredible. Like, because all, you know, it's, it's funny the way we watch things now is so unfocused, you know, for a lot of people and myself included of, you know, I'm usually like playing a crossword or something while I'm watching stuff or without meaning to, you know what I mean? It's just like, 
pick up the phone, forget, sort of miss a line here or there, or, you know, and I, I'm not obviously doing that with everything, but some things like Game of Thrones or something, which I'm really obsessed with. I won't even notice that I'm like during some sequence also texting, you know, Chloe about, you know, what we're doing next week. Right? You know, I don't even notice it's happening because the cell phone has become so ubiquitous, let alone a lot of people actually watching it on their cell phones. Therefore, seeing it on a big screen with an audience that has no choice but to pay attention and all the Easter eggs pop and the sound is so crisp that all everything makes sense. It's really something to get the, the privilege of that. It's like, I'm like, ah, oh, God, that is... Yeah, now that's my kink. Like, the idea of people <laughs> actually having to watch it and... You know, because it's like, I'm so grateful that you watch it and watch it again. It's like, yeah, if you watch it on the big screen, it's all right there for the taking. You know what I mean? Oh, it's so good. All right. I have a couple more questions. Who would be your own Alan in your own life? Like, who would you want to time travel with if you could? Oh, that's interesting. You know, weirdly, like, it might be like Ronan Farrow or Sean Lennon. And uh, I I would not say that those guys are like my best friends at all, but I know them a bit. I just think that they have a lot of information. I like the idea that I think if I was doing a lot of like time traveling work, I would want somebody that had a lot of like, was armed with a lot of facts. Well, obviously Ronan's like a serious academic. I know him only a little bit, but that guy's brain is pretty off the charts. I mean, he just has a lot of information. So I feel like if we ended up in sticky situations, he'd be like, you know where we are actually. Uh, so <laughs> it turns out that in 1942, there was an incident and you know what I mean? Like I'd almost want somebody who was a little bit mathy like that. And Sean's kind of funny that way too, that he really has a lot of information. In some ways also there was a measure of like, Fred was built into mm. the DNA of Alan a little bit just because Fred and I are very much like an odd couple of sort of like fire and water. Like, you know, Nadia is always red and Alan is always blue. And when Fred and I are together, you know, it's funny that we made it seven years because a lot of it is, if I had it my way, like the windows would always be open. The music would always be blasting. There would always be like, you know, ash from chain smoking flying. And like just a lot of excitement in the moving vehicle. Fred is a very hermetically sealed dude. It's like the windows are up, the volume is at a specific thing, the temperature is correct, the car is always crispy clean. Yeah, I wish I knew more sort of historians and quantum physicists. So I got, I'm trying to figure out like the closest to what I've got. Those are pretty good, Those I'd say. Pretty- I would just want somebody who could, I like being occupied with information <laughs> when I'm bored. Yeah, like I feel like there's all this stuff that I missed out on. Um, I think I would have been quite happy being like a an academic, sort of just like reading books all day. You know that episode of The Twilight Zone with Mr. Beechcroft? He's like, oh, I just want to be left alone to read my books. And then he finally gets his wish and it's just piles and piles of books, but then his glasses break. I always found that like harrowing. That's my my biggest fantasy, my worst nightmare. So I'm like, I think I always want to be, I would want to be with the person who's read the most books. Hmm. Okay, then Nadia Comaneci, why does that mean so much to you? Because you were too young for, I I was young enough to remember the perfect 10 in the 1976 Olympics. And uh, when I was a kid, you wouldn't expect it because I'm such a heavy smoker. I was quite the gymnast and I was pretty sporty. Uh, 
And I like, there was talk in the house that I was going to, they were going to try to get me like a coach to do Olympics gymnastics when I was a little girl. And so I was very, she was really on my radar. Like she was kind of like my Mike Tyson, you know, it was just, so I think I was just very into her. I was also very into Golda Meir as a kid. I, uh, so I, yeah, I just really liked Nadia Comaneci and I really, I was doing like all kinds of flips all the time and that kind of thing. Wow. I can still get through windows and stuff pretty good. Impressive. I like that. I knew there were, there had to be some kind of connection and I never would have paid you for a gymnast. So I just, that, that's, uh an aha moment right there sporty but it is like that's you don't give up there there's a certain fight in there all right well this is my last question so this season i'm talking about ambition last season it was fear it was something that was very present in my life obviously with in everyone's life with covid and all of that stuff and this year it's like what i was thinking about what i came out of the two-year pandemic basically feeling like what's my ambition now that the world stopped and I, we dealt with all of this stuff globally as humans. So I think it's interesting for you. I'm mean, very interested in your answer in particular because as a child actor, right? So you've, you've been at this since, you know, six years old. Initially, it must have been part of it was your parents' ambition, right, for you to have this or to put your energy towards something to occupy you. But at what point did you establish your own personal relationship with ambition. And how is that for you today? Like, what is your kind of relationship to that? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, um, it's so funny. I always wonder like what answers I would give if I was a boy, I guess, <laughs> because it's weird that like without even just reflexively, you know, um, it's like you want, we're sort of uh, trained to keep it humble to stay, you know, yeah, I guess, um, you know, uh, acceptable or sort of like desirable in some way or non-threatening. Um, and, uh, but just to say that for sure, as a, you know, I think so much of my kind of like breaking apart and coming back together was, um, like I, I remember sort of aggressively dropping out feeling like I had arrived at like the top of some mountain and it was like American Pie was the number one movie in the country. And I was like, you know, dating like some wonderful actor and, you know, we'd end up in like page six and I would wear these like borrowed outfits and they'd blow dry my hair. And I was like, what is this? You know what I mean? Like whose fantasy is this? Uh, I think this is like my parents trip. Uh, and, you know, essentially the trouble with being, an actor, like an actor is like, it's a beautiful job. I mean, it's a heavy job. It's, you know, done correctly. It is, um, it's the real deal. The, the idea that it was somebody else's sort of idea for me just felt like it wasn't mine. And the downside is you're, you don't have a ton of autonomy. So it's not like you have an idea and then you do the idea. Um, somebody has to choose you for you to be able to get um, to sh sort of show your wares at all. And, you know, that's crushing often because you're not chosen. Um, and even when you are, it's like, they just want you to do that thing that you did before or something. Um, so just to say that, and also it just feels like the idea that in this business in general, you are, you know, often it's like, I'm, I'm doing a lot of stuff 
just because I know that the way it works is that if you want to get your sort of bizarre original sort of projects financed, it's a lot easier if people know who you are. That's just the bottom line. It's really, you know, it's it's hard out there. And even if, you know, everybody knows who you are and thinks you're great, they don't let you make everything you want to make. Um, so anyway, I wasn't quite sure, though, at the time what it was for. Um, you know, dropping out and reading all this Thomas Pynchon and like, you know, sitting by the water and reading all these self-help books, you know what I mean? And the four agreements and, you know, just eating snacks, eating a lot of snacks, you know what I mean? Really got to let it go out there. Um, and yeah, at a certain point, I remember like, this play came up to do this uh, Mike Lee play at the new group um, that Scott Elliott was going to direct and Chloe had worked with him and she vouched for me and she kind of like came over and visited me and she was like, what's going on with you, dude? And I was like, no, you know, I don't, I don't participate anymore. I'm done. It's great to see you though. And like, and suddenly I came back to New York for this off-Broadway play. That was sort of like my first, and I remember like I worked with a dialect coach. I got that accent down and I was like, I was already a huge Mike Lee fan from uh, that movie Naked. I love David Thewlis in that movie mm -hmm. and Catherine Cartledge, the late great Anna. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I really was like, I stayed really close. I like moved into this weird, like furnished apartment right by the theater. And I just did that 24 seven and started developing this kind of different relationship to it. And I started, it was like my, you know, choice all of a sudden. And I really had to like work to get it back. It was not easy. And, you know, it was just, it was not a like, oh, Robert Downey Jr. is back, we're so excited. It was more like nobody cares. And um, so once I started with like, you know, like the writing and everything was sort of born out of necessity in a way. Like it wasn't that I was, wasn't naturally sort of, you know, very Carrie Fisher anecdotal. It's just that yeah, I wasn't formally kind of doing anything. Um, and I guess once all that started to happen, it really did shift everything. Like now this company I have with Maya, I'm obsessed with. I am absolutely obsessed with, uh, I love directing. I just, I really, it's like what, it's so much more organically what I was born to do than anything else I've ever done. Like I really can just, feel the difference in my bones of like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And um, my brain is like occupied correctly and I'm calm. Um, and so so that's it. But I did, I needed a full rearrangement, a full different perspective and like to fully come at it as an adult. And, you know, now I think that my question marks around, yeah, just like what is my threshold for mendacity. You know, like I remember hearing that word in um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and like Brick is talking to Big Daddy and he's talking about trying to hear the click and how he hears a click with alcohol and, you know, then mendacity. That's the thing that like why he needs the booze, right? And for me, it's like, I really hear the click with the work. Like that's what I mean by directing. I really, I can hear it. And it's like my brain goes like, it, it hits some different relaxed state and the thing I can't stand is mendacity. So I'm like, what is my tolerance threshold vis-a-vis -vis as relates to ambition in this weird game? Like, 
how much are you supposed to, you know, take? You can't have a zero tolerance policy because you'd never be able to leave the house. You know what I mean? And so I'm always wondering, like, you know, what? And then how do you get to like such a deep sense of like knowing what you really want to say in your limited time here that you even know how to kind of navigate those um, sort of like standing your ground correctly? Because it's really, you know, it's, you know, I am not um, a resolved human being. Like I am sort of like a, you know, deeply flawed, still sick. Like I really, I have no judgment on anybody's kind of like, you know, uh, drugs life, sex life, whatever the hell it is. Like, I'm like, I understand why, uh, you know, it's like people are, um, are constantly trying to get out of their own skin. I, I get what that is on a deep level. You know what I mean? Even if I, um, you know, try like to sort of surf around it at this point in my life, you know, I, I, I get it. And, um, so yeah, so I think I'm always just trying to figure out like, what is this all, you know, ultimate truth that I'm really after that I want to use this for? Like it's, it is important to me, you know what I mean? Like this is for sure. This, uh, making things is like my life's work and kind of, yeah. So I, I do really care. And then at some point I want to got to start getting involved in some more vacations or something. I really like being on the beach. That's one of my big ambitions. And I'd love to, um, yeah, I just, as much as I can, I want to like get rid of shame. Like I can't believe how hard they make it, you know, for people to sort of like, you know, uh, reacclimate to society after you get out of jail or something. I mean, I was on Orange is New Black that became like a big thing. It's just, why, why are we making it so hard for people? Like how, like, how dare people get involved with other people's, you get to get married. You shouldn't get married. You have rights. You don't have rights. Like all that stuff is so dark to me, just as somebody who's, um, so, um, you know, um, like intuitively into personal freedoms, it just, it kills me. So I think, yeah, the idea of ever, uh, like this idea that somehow some, somewhere along the way, some people decided no, we are the authority and this group is other, you know, like I will always identify with other. So I don't like that game. And so I just would love the idea of getting to do whatever I can in whatever way to keep being like, no, uh, other uh, others in charge. I like that. That makes me happy. Well, I'm happy that I get to be around to watch you continue to evolve. And I'm really excited to see um, what's coming next and then what's after that and then after that and then after that because um, you're endlessly fascinating to me and highly intelligent. So I might actually pick you to go on a time loop with... I mean, I know Ronan's brilliant. I know he was like at college yeah. in, in seventh grade, finishing law school. He's brilliant. But I don't know. I feel like I might have more fun with you uh, just breaking yeah, it all down. You need a lawyer if you're time looping. <laughs> you need a lawyer to be like, uh, excuse me, time judge. How do we get out of here? Uh, we were here by mistake. Look at the paperwork. I always imagine everything is like Brazil. It's like Brazil Beetlejuice in time court. <laughs> you need Ronan to get you out. Um, 
Oh, it's so funny. Well, it's great to see you, Natasha. Be well out there. And I look forward to the next time I get to run into you. Me too, you. Thank you so, so much. Russian Doll Season 2 is streaming now on Netflix. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to NetflixQ.com for more. That's NetflixQueUE.com. 